Have you heard of the nuns? I'm not talking about Roman Catholic women who wear habits. Rather, I'm talking about those who mark none on religious preference surveys. It is the fastest growing religious group in the United States, and it's something we need to pay attention to. The March issue of the Lutheran Witness takes up this question regarding where they come from, what they believe, and how we can point them to Christ and Him crucified for the forgiveness of their sins. To learn more, pick up your copy of the Lutheran Witness. Visit witness.lcms.org to learn more. The Lutheran Witness, helping you interpret the world from a Lutheran perspective. I think the new ethic is founded on the volatile and non-transferable platform of human emotion. It's purely visceral feelings and sentiment, which are themselves inscrutable. The problem with CRT is that it has the same problem that the white nationalists do. Just define everybody by their race and not who they are as an individual. Where you have the white nationalists doing this and you have the critical race theorists doing this, they're just doing it in different directions. But given the challenges that black families face specifically, I don't think it's too much to ask for the leading civil rights organizations to talk more about the importance of the black family than they do about the importance of Planned Parenthood's agenda. And the only way he can justly forgive is by paying the price for those sins himself. And so this is the way humanity can find meaning and purpose and know right from wrong. And that truth's only found within scripture. Young Lutherans, ages four and six, Learn the evening prayer from listening to Issues Etc. I thank you, my Heavenly Father, through Jesus Christ, your dear Son, that you are blessed If you know someone who, when asked about the religious affiliation, says, well, I don't really have one, none of the above, so to speak, well, then you know a nun. It's the fastest growing category, religious category in the United States. It's still not a majority, but it's faster growing than any other religious category. So statistically, you know some of those people, maybe even some of them are your friends or family or your co-workers. So do they have no spirituality at all? And if we look at them as a group, what have they replaced God with? Turns out for a lot of them, it's politics and government. Welcome back to Issues Etc., coming to you live from the studios of Lutheran Public Radio in Collinsville, Illinois. I'm Todd Wilkin. Thanks for tuning us in. We're going to talk about the God of the Spiritual Nuns with Pastor Peter Burfind, author of the book Gnostic America. And then a little bit later, Dr. Adam Kuntz, author of a column for the Lutheran Witness titled A Sacrifice for Our Children. We'll discuss parental sacrifice and Christian education. Pastor Peter Burfind is pastor of Agnes Day Lutheran Church in Marshall, Michigan, and Our Savior Lutheran Church in Union City, Michigan. He's author of the book Gnostic America, A Year Crowned with Goodness, and a recent column for the Lutheran Witness magazine titled Government, the God of the Nuns. Peter, welcome back. Thanks for having me on again, Todd. Are the spiritual nuns, are they irreligious? They're irreligious in the sense that they don't hold to any specific established or institutional religion. And there's a very specific reason for that. It's it's that for 150 years, we've been taught by our philosophy, by just the subtle teachings of our media, the catechesis of our culture, that all forms of religion are false, are pharisaical, are elusive, aren't real. But yet they have some sort of a spirituality. They have a, a internal drive to understand that there's a greater meaning in the world. And unfortunately, they're just not finding it in church. Therefore, you could say they're definitely irreligious, but they don't lack a faith 
they definitely have a faith, but it's not in any established religion, any sort of established theology or doctrine. It's a very nefarious thing. Well, what I'm arguing in that article is that very often those inchoate spiritual feelings manifest as political movement or take form in activist political activity. So explain how the government has become the god of the nuns. This is a long story, and it goes back to actually a Lutheran character named Hegel that we can talk about later. But essentially what it comes down to is that the belief is that history is progressing in a certain manner. I mean, just think of the entire phrase progressives. The concept of progressivism assumes that there's a telos of history. And when I say telos of history, what I mean is that there's an end goal of history. There's a place that history is moving towards. Well, if you get rid of God, if you get rid of the idea of God, then who's going to set that telos? Who's going to decide what that is? So what's replaced it is this kind of nebulous idea of the spirit of history. And again, that goes back to this philosopher Hegel that we can talk about. But there's this spirit of history that's moving things in a certain direction. And as one by one, new people have higher consciousness of where things should go, then pretty much you get a critical mass of people that can affect change by the democratic process through politics and through activist government. They can literally change the world and lead it towards these progressive ends in which the world is literally a better place, a better governed, a place without war, a place without pestilence, a place without famine. And eventually utopia is possible for us. And there's a lot of people believe this. And it goes against science because science has no telos. Science only is descriptive, telling us what is. But through this kind of ledger domain or magic, they turn science into a prescriptive thing that tells us, well, this is the direction we're going at. So if we keep on this track, eventually we'll have transhumanism. We'll have all these wonders in the world that'll make, essentially give us eternal life here on earth. So essentially then, humanity or the human spirit or the collective human soul becomes the replacement God. What warnings does Jesus make about government taking the place of God? Well, that's what's interesting, because when we read Matthew 24 and Jesus's eschatological teachings, we kind of disconnect. There's four things that go hand in hand that end up being the four horsemen of the apocalypse in Revelation. And we always look at the first three horsemen are war, famine, and pestilence. And then we kind of disconnect the next one from them, which is false prophecy or antichrists. But first off, when Jesus talks about the end, he says that war, famine, and pestilence will always be going on. Those things are going to be going on till the end of time. Those are the beginning of the birth pangs. They're always going to be going on. Well, part of that curse, you might say, is also false prophecy or antichrists. And antichrists and false prophets always fall on the heels of those other things because they promise that they can save the world from those ills. So when people are stricken, smitten by famine or pestilence or warfare, they look to a leader who's going to save them from that. So essentially, there's a mantle or an archetype of a savior that Jesus represents. And he's not the savior that we worship in the Bible and communes with us sacramentally in the church or is the body of Christ in the church. But it's a mantle or an archetype that anybody who can assume the position of saving the world can bear on his shoulders. 
so he becomes kind of the the answer to the problem of the world and the world believes that hey this this political figure because his eyes a political figure he's going to answer these problems politically this political figure will save us from all our ills and that that's essentially what Jesus's warning is 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 a political messiah someone who's going to solve the world's problems essentially solve the problem of sin through political means how do the apostle john's warnings about the ancient heresy of gnosticism apply today so the question is is how can we take this character jesus who is clearly a first century palestinian who did his work in the first century and we believe to be continually present with the church sacramentally and through the word and the church is the physical manifestation of Jesus Christ in the world today that's a very defined distinct denominated thing which is Jesus shaped by his body and blood formed and framed by his body and blood in first century palestine and then now through his literal body and blood in the church and also the just the entire incarnational aspects of the church today. If you want to know where Jesus is, you can point to something and say there he is. And today that means the church. So how do we get to the point where the government now can bear the mantle of being a Christ-like entity that will save the world from all its ills? And the answer to that is what St. John writes about the Gnostics. And he says the antichrist is anyone who denies that Jesus Christ has come into the flesh. Now he's talking about the Gnostics, but look what's going on there is Christ or the word Christ no longer has any connection to the flesh and blood of Jesus Christ. The term Christ or the name Christ is not so much the name of a physical person, but it's a mantle or an archetype. It's something purposely not related to the physical. Being an archetype or a mantle, it's something anybody can bear. Christ is not a person. Christ is kind of a a figure that comes up throughout history that saves the world from its ills and the world will be primed for such a figure if they believe that there's going to be this kind of messianic character in the world today who's going to rise up and save the world from all its ills and this actually could swing back to our lutheran understanding of the antichrist because who would be such a figure it could you know it might be the 12th imam that the that the uh, muslims are waiting for it could be the messiah that the Jews are waiting for or it could be the pope he could be a unifying figure like that that could unite all people together and and kind of create this hey we're going to bring a, a political solution to the world's ills here and now but it's this gnostic understanding of Christ that the way i put it is Christ leaks out of his flesh and blood and becomes this kind of nebulous fuzzy archetype or numinous thing that mantle that anybody can bear that's going to be a savior of the world what can we learn from Martin Luther's warnings about the millenarian movement of his day? He was concerned about it, and it kind of would eventually morph into the troubles we have today. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, through pietism and then Hegel putting his pietistic ideas into practice. So Martin Luther dealt with the Gnostic spirit in his day, and he did it through the, this group of the Radical Reformation, and it, it's broadly under the category of millenarianism. What is a millenarian? A millenarian is someone who believes in the thousand-year reign of Christ on earth. As such, they believe in sort of this political fulfillment or this political fulfillment of Christ's promises to end war, famine, and pestilence. Now, it's rooted in a monk or a monastic figure in the early Middle Ages. His name is Joachim of Fiore, 
who believe that there are three ages in history, the age of the Father, the age of the Son, and the age of the Holy Spirit. The age of the Son was the church age, and that would be the age of priests, doctrines, pastors, ministers, sacraments, anything that puts the gospel to form. But Joaquim Fiore distinctly believed that we were moving beyond that age. We're moving from the church age, the age of the Son, to the age of the Holy Spirit. And during the age of the Holy Spirit, people would have direct contact with God. No longer would we need the church or the sacraments or the word as a mediation point between God and his people, but the Holy Spirit would bypass that and work directly on the human heart. Well, if you believe that, then there's clearly a fuzzy line where God ends and you begin. Now, whereas before it was a very clear line, God ends where Christ is, now God ends, well, in my heart, in these feelings that I have in my heart. That goes back to Gnosticism. That's classic Gnosticism, that God kind of communicates directly in your heart. However, now we got something new, a new dynamic. If you believe that God is going to return to judge the world and establish his kingdom, but now you believe that God is working with you and in you and in your heart, well, now you believe that you are responsible for bringing about the kingdom of God on earth. When you feel it, you and a bunch of other elect Christians, people who are moving into the new age, the new age of the spirit, we're going to bring about, we're going to inaugurate the kingdom of God on earth. And so throughout the Middle Ages, you had these movements, these millenarian movements, where one prophet would arise, he'd believe that God was speaking to him. He was very charismatic. He'd speak to everybody around him and inflate their egos. And you're the elect. God has communicated to you. You're the vanguards of the new age. Join me as we lead the way into the kingdom of God on earth. And everything that preceded that, the kingdoms, the church, all the prevailing institutions would need to be destroyed. And God would be using them as instruments to destroy these movements of the past or these institutions of the past. So these movements frequently happened in the Middle Ages and they always caused problems. They'd gather their following. They would live communally and you know, it was all about love, and they didn't have any sacraments. They didn't have any form. It was just they lived by love and the book of the Bible alone. And again, they were, they were communalists. Well, they ended up running out of food, and they ended up having to ransack the area. And sometimes these revolutions or these millenarian revolutions would become quite violent, as in Munster around the time of Luther. But these movements were definitely going on in Luther's day, and he, he had nothing to do with it. He did not side with the political radicals of his day. But it's fascinating. If you look at these millenarian cults, they very often did exactly what you see today among our kind of woke element. They believed that everything prior to that moment in the age of the sun needed to be overturned and destroyed because it was all corrupt. And the only thing that could redeem the world is moving into this new age of the spirit, this age of purity, this age of light. And they'd go into these towns, they'd tear down statues, they'd change the name of streets. They would literally try to change times and places. They revolutionized marriage, all these things that you're seeing yet today. That's why I claim we're in the middle of a millenarian revolution right now. But Luther dealt with these already back in the day. What was 17th century pietism then? So pietism was definitely kind of started out in a benign way. It was a reaction to the rationalization of the day and, and kind of the overemphasis on orthodoxy or orthodox doctrine and just kind of a, a sterile understanding of the faith. But they fed at the well of some of the medieval mysticism and some of these millenarian ideas, and they focused more on personal piety and 
kind of emphasize that it's not what one of the pietists called them the dumb idols of the Lutheran church, meaning the pulpit, the font, the font and the altar. These are all dumb idols. The real faith happens in these things called conventicles where you gather together and again, like, like the millenarians with your Bible and love alone and you work on your personal sanctification and that's where genuine faith is. Faith is not located externally in the gifts that come to you from the outside, but faith is nurtured internally by the workings of the Holy Spirit internally. I'm Todd Wilkin. You're connected to Issues Etc. We're discussing the God of the Spiritual Nuns with Pastor Peter Burfine. He's pastor of Agnes Day Lutheran Church in Marshall, Michigan, and Our Savior Lutheran Church in Union City, Michigan. He's author of the books Gnostic America, A Year Crowned with Goodness, and a recent column for the Lutheran Witness magazine titled Government, the God of the Nuns. The Lutheran Witness interprets the world from a Lutheran perspective. An annual print and digital subscription is less than $20 Learn more at cph.org slash witness or by calling Concordia Publishing House 1-800-325-3040, The Lutheran Witness Magazine. So how did pietism, which we are now discussing, eventually give birth to the political philosophies that led to both Marxism and fascism? Listen to the best of the church's music for the season of Lent at LutheranPublicRadio.org. Sacred music for the season of Lent, LutheranPublicRadio.org. Do you know the fastest growing religious group in the United States? Is it Roman Catholics? Nope. It's not Protestants either. Rather, it's those who mark none on religion's preference surveys. They don't belong to any particular denomination. They still believe in some sort of spiritual being and reality, but they don't believe and don't claim adherence to any particular religious group. The March issue of The Lutheran Witness picks up the question of the nuns. To learn more, visit witness.lcms.org. The Lutheran Witness, helping you interpret the world from a Lutheran perspective. Spiritual and religious. You're listening to Issues Etc., Is your child struggling at school? Are you thinking about homeschooling? Would you like help knowing what to teach and how to teach it? The Simply Classical Curriculum from Memoria Press provides an enriching, step-by-step classical Christian education for students who have autism, learning or behavioral difficulties, ADHD, and more. You'll find everything you need, including daily lesson plans to guide your way. Learn more at simplyclassical.com. Use LPR23 to save on your order. SimplyClassical.com Your Aunt Mabel's church banners are from the 60s. They were quite something in the day, especially the psychedelic bell-bottoms. But now the colours have faded, the tassels fell off years ago, and the hand-stitched letters are skew. Come on over to AdCruesome.com and see our beautiful, theologically correct, Christ-focused church banners. We can customise size and colour to meet your church's requirements. Visit adcrucem.com. That's A-D-C-R-U-C-E-M dot com. We're discussing the God of the Spiritual Nuns with Pastor Peter Burfine. I'm Todd Wilkin. This is Issues Etc. 
Peter, how did, we were talking about pietism before the break, how did pietism eventually, even with its kind of innocuous beginnings, give birth to the political philosophies that led to both Marxism and fascism? So this is a long story that actually goes back to um, certain views of basically salvation and its relationship to the political environment. And it actually goes back to an ancient discussion between Augustine and Eusebius, the historian of the Christian church. Eusebius was centered more in Alexandria and Egypt. And he had more of a belief that he was a very strong cheerleader of what was happening at the time, which was Rome was becoming Christianized and the emperors were becoming Christian and and the politics of the day were, were being strongly influenced by Christianity. So he was a supporter of that and kind of crafted his theology to say, hey, this is a good thing and this is how God is going to manifest his will on earth. He's going to work through the politics of the day. Along with that, however, comes this understanding of salvation that worldly institutions or or even if it is the church, whatever, has the capacity to make people better. So if you have better people running the government, you're going to have a better world and a better society. Well, doing that, eventually you're going to bring about a perfected society. Well, Augustine had a far stronger understanding of sin and how it sticks with us and a far better understanding of grace and the role of the church. As he said in his City of God, there's two entities. There's a government and there's the Christian church. And the Christian church needs to be the Christian church. That's where God's gifts are given out. That's where grace is given out. Well, anyways, how do we take this forward to pietism? The pietists went with the view of Eusebius. They went with this idea that if we personally can become better and better and more sanctified, and if we're running the government, well, it stands to reason then that we can make a better society. Now, there's a parallel to this in our own experiment of American government when the Puritans, the Puritans were basically English pietists. Well, they believe that we're all sanctified, we're Puritans, we're, we're pure, therefore we can create a better England. We can create a new England. <laughs> they set up New England as a place to be the, the new Israel, the new Jerusalem. Pietists had a similar dynamic going on, and a lot of the early pietists believed that through pietistic government, they could actually make kind of like this ideal utopian society on earth. And so the pietists definitely had a political aspect to them. One of the most famous pietists who inherited these pietistic ideas was a philosopher named Hegel. And he grew up in a a city called Württemberg. He inherited these pietistic ideas. His challenge in his day as a philosopher was to make these pietistic ideas palatable or acceptable in an enlightenment age. See, in those days, it was the enlightenment and science reigned and science was king. You couldn't just take your pietistic ideas about the Holy Spirit sanctifying us and say, hey, this is the way we're going to make the world better. You had to kind of frame it or reframe it through these kind of enlightenment scientific ideas. So he came up with his philosophy, which was essentially a secularized version or a demythologized version of pietism and millenarianism that now take away the names of God, the Holy Spirit, the three ages, the higher consciousness or sanctification, and rename them as things like the spirit of history is moving us. Higher consciousness replaces sanctification. The uh, political movement or political activism replaces what would go on in the church. And eventually, 
the government will take over those responsibilities that the church used to do, such as catechesis. They'd take over education. They'd take over charity work through welfare. They'd take over hospital care with government-run hospitals. And so that laid the foundation for this idea that political movement can essentially replace the church and bring about a utopia, a kingdom of God on earth. Why do these messianic expectations for government inevitably lead to violence? So before I said that if you believe, again, if, if the line is fuzzy where God ends and you begin, because it's not fuzzy when you believe in Jesus. God ends where Jesus ends, and that ends where his body and blood is, and that ends in the church, sacraments, and in his word. Very formal, defined place where God ends and you begin. And the relationship between you and God is by way of gift, pure gift. He gives, you receive. However, if you move into the third age, like Joaquim of third age, and you no longer have the church and its sacraments, but the Holy Spirit works directly in your heart, you believe that you are God, that you're working with God, that you're cooperating with God. Well, one of the major functions of God, one of the major things he's going to do is judge the world. And if you do any kind of reading of the Old Testament, this morning I just got done reading Nahum, kind of an obscure Old Testament book, but if you read Nahum, God doesn't have very pleasant things he's preparing to do to Nineveh. <laughs> and God is a God of judgment. God is a God of wrath. God is a God that has done some highly destructive things in the world, like flood the entire thing. So if you believe you're God or that God is working with you, you can legitimize you being the hand of God's judgment on the earth. So the people that haven't evolved to the next age or the people that aren't the elect or the people that are rejecting the divine movements in history, they're not just people that have a different opinion. They are people that need to be eliminated from the world because they're getting in the way of the new world coming. And every totalitarian movement has had this understanding. Fascism, of course, had it. You know, the Jews were the dark, swarthy people of Germany that were keeping back the advent of the kingdom of light. Communism had the new man and, you know, the old man, the capitalistic man needed to be destroyed. And progressivism isn't as violent obviously like that, but it's definitely got this idea that, you know, you either evolve or you die. You know, you need to go with the times and you need to accept the coming new age or you're just going to be ignored and abandoned and you're not really even truly human. Christians can't look at the world that way. Christians look at our enemies and Christ tells us to love them. We don't look at anybody as, as unevolved or unworthy of God's love. What is the false hope? that the nuns have for government? How would you summarize it? Well, if you look at history, which unfortunately a lot of millennials have not had a lot of good history because of their education, otherwise they'd have a, a little bit of wisdom just looking at communism. But if you look at all these totalitarian millenarian movements going all the way back to Joachim of Fior, every one of them fails. The revolution in Munster, the New England experiment, communism, lasted 70 years and then failed. You know, fascism ended in a bunker in Berlin. All these movements, they provide a lot of hope. And it's sort of the pattern that we see in evangelicalism, quite frankly, where you get some movement, some new idea, some new method of sanctification, and you go to the weekend retreat and, wow, this is going to be awesome. And three days later, it fails. And you just, you realize that you're the same old sinful human being with an old Adam hanging on you that you got to deal with. And this understanding, this millenarian sanctified understanding of a pure governance 
they do believe you can eliminate the old Adam. Now, one of the books I referenced in the article is Arthur Kessler, The God That Failed. And right there, it's, I mean, he, he gets into this dynamic. He gives voice to, I think it's five or six ex-communists who describe their entire journey of how they got sucked into this movement, how it was based, it truly was a religion. And they, they had religious fervor. That it, was, it, was all, it was all based on faith. And eventually their God just failed them. Their God was to be this, to bring about this utopian society and this wonderful kingdom in, in this world. And it completely failed them. That's a good book to anybody that wants to kind of see how this dynamic works. It's called The God That Failed. And that, that's what happens when you set yourself as God, which is what this, it really is, is setting up yourself as God, that God will always fail. How is Lutheran theology uniquely equipped to respond to the failure of government to satisfy the hopes of the nuns? Because we have that clear line where God ends and, and we begin. That is the belief of this government as political messiah or political savior is that we are going to save the world. We're going to make the world a better place. But man, if you, do, if you just read any account of young people that, you know, we're going to change the world. I'm going to go do this, do that, and the other thing. I'm reading right now, I hope I get his name right, is Michael Schellenberger or something. But he was an environmentalist. And in the 80s, he, he was kind of a, a you know, young, liberal, progressive I'm going to save the world. And, and he would go on these mission trips and, and he'd go to Africa and he'd go to Brazil. And his whole goal was to, you know, introduce socialism and, and communalize properties and gather all the farming peasants together and, and try to, hey, we can help each other out. And we don't need these corporate farms and we don't need these corporations telling us what to do. Well, he went down there and he realized that nobody wanted to live in a commune. <laughs> Everybody wanted to be their own farmer. He also realized that technology was really the solution, that there's other far better ways to deal with things, that, that there is going to be evil in the world and it just doesn't work. So I think what happens is what Lutheran theology says is don't make that mistake in the first place. We do not make the world a better place. First off, right now, as we're speaking right now and our people are hearing this, Christ is in control of the whole world. He is a good God. He rules the world. He's working everything for his purposes and for the good of those who love him. So at any given moment, we should be able to look at the whole world and say, the earth is full of the goodness of the Lord. If we can't do that, we're wrong. We're being faithless. So that's number one. I mean, we don't have to look at the world as this place of misery, but we can look at it as a place where Christ truly rules. But also because we have that fine line where God ends and we begin, we don't give ourselves the false illusion that we can save the world. We're relieved of that burden. And finally, the, the ultimate thing is we can receive the world by way of gift. If the world is under God's control, if the world is held to God together by the word of his power, if the world was created through Christ, this is his show. We're just the passive actors of it. And I think that that takes a tremendous burden off of the soul to believe that our job is to be the creators of the world. No, this is God's show. He's doing it. We just have to sit back and receive it as gift and I think church teaches that. Church gives us the lens by which we can look at the world in that way, because that's all that church is, is we sit back, we receive his gifts, and we say thank you. Well, looking at the world with those lens, in a sense, sacramentalizes the world, sacramentalizes the politics, so that we can receive these things as a gift. And I think that could be a tremendous... And <laughs> the irony is, in the end, I think that ends up having a better effect on society. I don't know if it was Reagan or someone said, anytime someone comes to you with a, 
blueprint for a better society in his back pocket, run, run like heck, <laughs> because lots of people are going to be die. There's going to be lots of blood, lots of war and end up having a lot more famine. Pastor Peter Burfind is pastor of Agnes Day Lutheran Church in Marshall, Michigan, and Our Savior Lutheran Church in Union City, Michigan. He's author of the books Gnostic America and A Year Crowned with Goodness, and a recent column for the Lutheran Witness magazine titled Government, the God of the Nuns. You'll find a link to Pastor Burfind's books at issuesetc.org. Click Talk On Demand Archives. Peter, thanks. Thank you so much. We'll be talking about parental sacrifice and Christian education with Dr. Adam Kuntz, Next. Abide with me, crown him with many crowns, hark the herald angels sing. Have you ever wondered why our beloved hymns were written? The Issues Etc. Book of the Month for February is Eternal Anthems, the story behind your favorite hymns, Volume 2. Learn more at issuesetc.org or by calling Concordia Publishing House 1-800-325-3040. This new resource includes background on 50 hymns, Eternal Anthems, the story behind your favorite hymns, Volume 2. Save the date. The 2023 Lutherans for Life National Conference is October 11th through 13th at the Holiday Inn Cincinnati Airport in Erlanger, Kentucky, with visits to the Ark Encounter and Creation Museum. Look for more information in early 2023 at lutheransforlife.org conference. Lutherans for Life, equipping Lutherans and their neighbors to be gospel-motivated voices for life. lutheransforlife.org. Hope Lutheran Church in West Jordan, Utah, is a congregation that embraces the doctrinal and liturgical heritage of the Reformation. If you're coming to Utah to ski in the best snow on earth, or if you're coming here to see the wonders of God's creation in our national parks, or if you call the Salt Lake Valley your home, we would love to have you join us for Bible class and Sunday school at 930 and the divine service at 1030. We also offer a midweek service Wednesday nights at 7. You can find us online at westjordanlutherans.org. Not everyone is comfortable with new technology. Dial A Podcast gives all generations of your congregation an easy way to hear your sermons or even devotionals and Bible studies. Once you've completed a simple one-time setup, we take care of the rest. All your congregants have to do is dial the number from any phone to listen to your latest podcast, all at no additional cost to them. Dial A Podcast. Extend the reach of your sermons. Get started at dialapodcast.com now. Lutheranism in the public square. You're listening to Issues Etc. I think every man, every Christian should consider, at least, the possibility of God calling him into the holy ministry. Issues Etc. regular guest, Dr. Carl Fakencher of Concordia Theological Seminary, Fort Wayne, Indiana. Because that's the way that God has designed for faith in Christ Jesus to be spread, for the gift of eternal life that Christ Jesus earned by his death and resurrection to be shared with people, by the washing of baptism for infants and for adults, for the instruction, the proclamation of the word that happens uh, on a nonstop basis in God's kingdom. God uses people, he uses men, to be those proclaimers, to be those men who, who share the, the sacraments. 
If you've ever considered becoming a pastor, contact Concordia Theological Seminary in Fort Wayne, Indiana. Their phone number, 1-800-481-2155, 1-800-481-2155, or visit ctsfw.edu.